And uh, please can the rest of us find in our Bibles uh, Romans chapter 12. And uh, verse 9, I'm going to read from verse 9 to verse 12. I'm going to be thinking about verse 12, part of verse 12. So page 1127. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor, that is means hate, what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So keep your Bible open, but then now let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to consider your word. We do pray that you'll please speak to us through your word. We pray that you will cause us to hear what you are saying to us. And we pray that you will, uh, Lord, those who belong to you, we pray that you will encourage them and strengthen them. And any who do not yet belong to you, we pray that you'll move them to come to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought this Sunday, um, when I'm, this is the first Sunday of 2023 when I'm speaking, I thought I would draw your attention to uh, verse 12 of that reading and particularly the phrase rejoice in hope rejoice in hope now one thing which has led me to think it would be good to um, encourage us to think along these lines is because of the challenges that we face at the present time. Uh, I'm not sure I can remember a New Year period where there was as little hope in the world as as we've we've had. And many people have said things like, well, you know, I hope this year is going to be better than the last one. You know, and people have been quite gloomy, haven't they, as they've come up to this New Year. There's been the war in Ukraine, there's been... The cost of living crisis, there's been 
many, many strikes, the crisis in the health service, all the various shenanigans in the, in, in the royal family. And these have all joined together to sort of form a sort of to- toxic cocktail of gloom for many. And on top of this, many Christians, I'm sure, attempted to be discouraged by the seeming inexorable advance of postmodern thinking in our society, which is leading to a collapse of morals on many fronts, the loss of truth, and it would seem a very rapid turning away from uh, Christianity uh, on the part of many. Many who would have called themselves Christians 10 years ago, according to the census, figures recently uh, released, would no longer do so. And many of us individually, of course, face our own personal challenges as well, concerns for family members, health issues, financial worries, and of course the ongoing battle with sin and with the devil. And in such a context, it would be very easy, even very explicable, almost you might think quite normal to feel discouraged and even perhaps to sink into despair and and it'd be very easy to sort of extrapolate forward and say well it's bad now but according to current trends it's going to get horrendous and so it seemed to me that it would be good to remind us of this exhortation rejoice in hope against that dark backdrop of the gloom and the darkness of our society here is this bright light rejoice in hope now I'm sure that many of us will be aware that when the Bible talks about hope it uses the word in a way which is different from most people the way that most people in our society use the word hope when people in our world talk about hope, what they mean is wish. (laughs) I hope so, in the sense of I wish it would be so, but I've got a very good idea that it won't be so. So I hope this year is going to be a good year. I fear it won't be, but I hope it will be, people say. Oh, I hope I'll see you tomorrow. I hope this, hope that. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't do so in the sense of Oh, we'd like it to happen, but we've got a jolly good idea that it won't. No. When the Bible uses the word hope, it says it's saying, this is something really wonderful, amazing, that's coming in the future. And it's something which is certain for believers. Because it's grounded upon the promises of of God. And so for the person who belongs to Christ, that person can be sure of these things which are hoped for. So Paul says to the believers, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in the things which are in the future which are certain for you. The good things which are certain. For the Christian, this is not whistling in the dark with some sort of vague hope that 
things will be all right. No, this is a confident assurance of great blessing to come. Now, um, this uh, exhortation here, um, rejoice in hope, comes in the part of Paul's letter where he is bringing out the practical implications of what he's been talking about in the first half. And of course, the hope that he talks about is very much built upon the foundation of what he said in the first part of this letter. He's talked about how through the gospel, we are sa- those who believe are saved from the consequences of their sin. He's explained in chapters 1 to 3 about how we are all sinners, how we've all broken God's law, how we all deserve to go to hell, how we can't make ourselves right with God. And then it's explained in chapters 3 to 5 about how through Jesus Christ, God gives to those who believe a righteousness that they do not have. So they are counted as being righteous in God's sight and are qualified to go to heaven. Then verses chapter 6 to 8, he's talked about how not only God has delivered us from the guilt of our sin, but also he saved us from the power of our sin, those who believe. He's united us with Christ in his death and united us with him in his resurrection. And then in chapters 9 to 11, he's talked about how God has got great plans for the Jews. He's not left the Jews out. The time is going to come when many Jewish people will believe. And when those Jewish people believe, that in turn will lead to many more Gentiles, non-Jews, also trusting in Christ. And so having laid that great doctrinal framework, he then urges Verse, chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to work out in our thinking and in our living the implications of these great truths that he's talked about in the first half of the letter. And one thing he urges upon His readers is this. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Now, um, if we're going to do this, of course, we need to understand what our hope is. And so what I want to do this this morning is to sketch out for us And very much sort of, I give a sort of like an overview because a lot could be said on all of these different things. But just to give you an, a, an overview of the teaching of the Bible about the hope that the believer has. And uh, I want to do so under two main headings. First of all, hope that a believer has for things that will happen before Jesus comes again 
and then hope that the believer has for things that will happen after Jesus comes again. So let me, um, let, let, let's now think about these things. So first of all then, hope for what we can expect to happen before Jesus comes again. And the first thing I'd like to say under this heading is this, this main heading is this, that we can have confidence that many people, vast numbers of people, will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation. Think of what God promised to Abraham. As recorded in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17. God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. So God promises to Abraham that he is going to have an enormous number of children. How many grains of sand are there at the seashore? Can anybody say how many grains of sand there are? I don't think anybody could possibly begin to count all the sand, grains of sand on the seashore. Well, God says to Abraham, that's how many children you're going to have. Well, but the Jewish nation is just a few, you know, a few million. How come Abraham's going to have so many children? Well, because those who believe, Paul says in this letter, chapter 4 of this letter, those who believe are the children of Abraham. And uh, again and again and again, the scriptures assure us that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be a vast kingdom. We read earlier in our service from Isaiah 6 about how uh, Jesus is this great king and it says over and he will reign over the throne of David and over his kingdom. Uh, it says of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Isaiah 9 7. An ever increasing kingdom. Or think of, of the vision that God gave to Daniel, or God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in the book, of, which is recorded in Daniel chapter two. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel to explain this vision. And in this vision, he saw Nebuchadnezzar saw this great statue which represented a series of empires. And then this statue was hit by a great rock that was not cut by human hands, and the statue fell to pieces. All these empires fell down. And this rock grew to be a mountain that filled the whole earth. It's a picture of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rule of Christ filling the whole earth. And even in this letter, Paul um, speaks about, about this. About how, uh, as I mentioned, he talks in chapter 11 about how uh, the Jews... The Jewish people are going to be saved in vast numbers. And uh, he says that that's going to itself bring great blessing to the Gentiles. Um, 
Romans 11 verse 12. He says, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? And verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The Jews rejecting Christ was a source of great blessing to the Gentiles because it meant the gospel went to the Gentiles. He says, well, if them rejecting Christ caused the gospel to flourish, what will their acceptance mean? Well, it'll be life from the dead for the world. The gospel will really take off when the Jews believe. And so, we who believe have reason to be very optimistic for the future of the gospel. It's very easy living in Britain at the beginning of the 21st century to become discouraged because in our particular country in the last 150 years or so there's been a decline overall in the, in the proportion of, of, of true Bible-believing Christians as a proportion of the population. Not universally, but in in quite a few areas, that's, that, that has to be acknowledged. Churches are smaller. A lot of churches have closed in the last 150 years. But that's not the picture globally. That's not what's happened in China. That's not what's happened in Latin America. That's not what's happened in Africa. Or in India. Or in Pakistan. The gospel is growing. And we have every reason to believe from scripture that as they say you ain't seen nothing yet this is just the beginning there's tremendous success for the gospel and I'm quite sure that that this little fad that we've got of postmodernism at the moment is going to become it's going to become very passe soon people are going to get fed up with it they can say, we want some solidity. We want some reality. We want truth. And they'll go back to the Bible. I say, oh, wow. There is male and female. Oh, wow. There is right and there is wrong. Oh, wow, there is a God. And they'll be so shocked and so amazed. And they will, I'm sure, the Lord will bring many to himself. Now, so that's the first thing. First thing, under, as we're thinking about hope before Jesus comes again. Another thing that we can be hopeful about, we have reason to be confident about, is that as this progress of the gospel happens, the world will become a better place. It's already actually a much better place. You might not believe it, but it's actually a, a vastly better place than it was 2,000 years ago. Human rights weren't heard of 2,000 years ago. Rulers would just kill people at whim, without any compunction. Where have human rights come from? Well, it's from the Bible. It's the spread as Christianity has had its effect upon the whole consciousness of humanity. Where's the idea of 
selfless sacrifice come from? You won't find that in any religion. There's a guy called Tom Holland who's written a book called Dominion. I haven't read all of it. In fact, I've only read a chapter of it. But I'm told, what he, this is what it says, he's an atheist, and he says, you can see how the message of a God who suffers and who's a servant and who dies on a cross in shame, you can see that that has, has an impact upon the whole of Western society and indeed upon the whole world. It's true. But this is only the beginning of what we can expect. Um, that passage that we read earlier from, from uh, Isaiah, chapter 2, it's such an amazing passage. You might want to just flick back to it quickly. It's such an amazing passage. Talking about people beating their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. People say, oh, that must be talking about when Jesus comes again. But it can't be because it says, they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways. It says the word will go out from Zion, which of course is a picture of the church. And they will learn the ways of the Lord. And so, what this is talking about is that people will start to say, what would Jesus have me to do? Which of course is what Christians do. People are born again. But it won't be just one or two Christians who are saying, but whole nations are saying, they'll be referring things to Christ. What would you have us to do? And they will start to live in peace with each other because they don't have hostility towards one another. You say, that's impossible. Well, it is impossible, humanly. But think about it. What happens when one person is converted? His whole tenor of life, his whole, whole aim of life has changed. He used to hate God, now he loves God. He used to hate other people, now he loves other people. He used to be sexually immoral, now he's chaste. He used to often get drunk, now he's, now he's sober. He lives, used to be lazy, now he works hard. That's one person. Well, multiply that by a hundred. Multiply it by a thousand. Multiply that by a hundred thousand. Multiply that by a million. Multiply that by a hundred million. Multiply that by a billion. What have you got? You've got a whole massive sea change in the way that whole societies think and behave. You can see this happening. You can see it's recognized by secular historians how the gospel had an enormous impact upon this country in the 18th century, 19th century, turn this nation into the nation of the book, turn this nation into a civilized, hard-working, honest nation. We still, for all the faults of this country, we still live in the, if you like, the, the long effects of, of what happened in, in, in the 18th and 19th. Same with the states of America. For all the faults you find in the United States, there are, it, 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 the Bible has shaped very large sections of society in the United States. Now, think of that happening in Saudi Arabia. 
Pakistan, Iran, Russia. Think of, of as, as, the, as the gospel goes forward, what an effect this we can, it will have. So we have reason to be very hopeful and very optimistic before Jesus comes again. Now let, now let me go now to talk about reasons for hope for when Jesus comes. Because Jesus will come again and he will bring this present evil age to an end. And there are many, many wonderful things that we who believe can confidently look forward to when Jesus comes again. The first is, and I, I'm literally just sketching and saying, forgive me, I'm only sketching, but I want to give you like an overview. But the first is this, that we shall have resurrection bodies. Not everybody appreciates this, but what happens to us when we die is not the final state. If we are a Christian, when you die, your soul leaves your body and you go to paradise, you go to heaven. That's why we say, you know, in everyday terms, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Well, the Christians can say, who's trusting in Jesus, yes, for sure, I will go to heaven when I die. I'll go to be with the Lord, which is far better. Paul talks about this. And that's a wonderful thing. To go to heaven when you die, if your soul to be with the Lord. That's wonderful. But that's not the final state. That's an interim state. Until Jesus comes again. And then when Jesus comes again, our souls which have been, for us who are believers, our souls which have been in paradise with him will come back with Christ and our bodies will be raised up from the dead and our souls will be reunited with our bodies and we shall have glorious, wonderful new bodies. And the thing which is very important to understand is that Jesus' actual body was raised from the dead and that that resurrection of the body of Jesus is a sort of prototype for our resurrection bodies. And that just as Jesus had a glorious and wonderful new body, so we too who believe, in fact everybody will have new bodies, even unbelievers, but they but they will be bodies for punishment. But we will have, we who believe, will have wonderful new bodies which will be completely free from weakness and from suffering, from disease and pain, which will be strong and beautiful bodies. Now, this is the whole point of what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the... He's, he's, he's saying, look, you've got to understand that Jesus actually was, Jesus' actual body was raised. 
They grabbed hold of him, some of them disciples. They, they, they actually felt him. They saw him eat food. He walked along a road with them. He could break food open, break bread. He had an actual body. It wasn't just a spirit. He had an actual body. And we who believe also will have glorious and wonderful new bodies. So he says, Paul says, for example, verse 42. We can't read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. But if we just, if you want to just look at one, page 1143, look at, page, at verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection. He's been talking about heavenly bodies, different like heavenly bodies as against earthly bodies in terms of stars and so on as against things on earth and then he says so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable it is raised imperishable it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body thus it is written the first man, Adam, became a life-giving being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, that is Jesus, of course, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You and I, if you are a Christian, you are going to have a glorious resurrection body just like Jesus' glorious resurrection body. That's going to be tremendous. You're never going to get ill again. You're never going to have any pain again. You'll be strong. You'll be healthy and vigorous. And uh, you will be able to uh, serve the Lord uh, happily and comfortably. Now, that's the first thing. Now, the second thing under this heading of what happens when Jesus comes again is that the creation is going to be renewed. Not only our bodies, our own bodies are going to be renewed, but the whole of creation is also going to be renewed. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. And the thing is, the thing to understand is that just as when Adam sinned, the creation fell. You remember how God said to Adam, by the sweat of your brow you shall toil. And there'll be thorns and thistles will come up. And he said to the woman that she'll give, she'll, when she gives birth it will be with pain. And he says, you'll work until you return to the dust. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. That Adam was under a curse but the world was under a curse. And all sorts of nasty things, you know, flourished. Mosquitoes and thorns and thistles and, 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 and everything started to break down and death came into the world. 
some Christians would argue, and perhaps I, you could argue this point, that, that, that the animal world was vegetarian prior to the fall. Some debate that, but, but some would argue that's the case. It would seem that may well be the case. But, and, but death came in at the fall. But, but now what's going to happen is that this, this marred creation, this damaged creation, is going to be set free from its curse. So Romans 8 verse 18. Paul talks about this, how the creation is going to be set free from, uh, from, from its, its bondage to decay. He says, I consider that the, suff- the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to us futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation been waiting on edge, eager expectation. The actual word means to sort of stand on tiptoe. You know, oh, when's it going to happen? This eager waiting for the time when the the glory of the sons of God will be revealed. The curse is taken away, and the creation will be renewed. Be beautiful, wonderful. All the different animals living together happily, trees and plants and mountains and fields. Be truly beautiful and glorious. And we'll be able to enjoy it, that new creation. Without things breaking and being destroyed and damaged. Now, the third thing, which we've already hinted at, but or mentioned passing, but is said explicitly in scripture is that in the future state when Jesus comes again for believers there will be no more suffering Uh, Revelation 21 which we read earlier verse 3 page 1233 if you want to follow Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall be mo- there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away no more funerals no more cancer wards no more need for painkillers 
No more grief because of wayward sons and wayward children or because of misunderstandings between Christians. All these things will be gone. No suffering of any sort. And then also, another feature of this new age is the end of sin. Perfection. Anybody who's a Christian, one sign that you have become a Christian, that you're born again, is that you, if you are born again, if you are a true Christian, you will be deeply dissatisfied with your current walk with God. And if you're not, <laughs> I wonder if you're a real Christian because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes us very uncomfortable with our sin as he reveals to us the corruptions that still lie within us. He reveals to us the perfection of God, the perfection of his word. It can become very distressing. It, 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 for most Christians will find it very distressing that, that, that oh, There's this pain, this grief. Why did I do that? Paul talks about it in Romans 7. To me, Romans 7 is talking about it. It seems to me it's very clear that that's, he's talking about a Christian. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but I have not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to, but the evil I do not want I keep on doing. Oh, this is frustration. Oh, no, it wasn't the person I am. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin who dwells in me. This longing, oh, if only I could be different. Wretched man, he says, verse 24 of seven, Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because this sin is bound up with the fact that I'm still living in this, in this body. With, which is so linked to that sinful tendency that I have, this flesh that dwells within me. But then he says, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a day coming when I'll have a new resurrection body that isn't programmed to sin like this old body of death. And it won't be a struggle anymore. I won't be thinking, oh, I must really try to be good today. I must really try to, to suffer. No, because it will be in your nature and my nature, through and through, to be pure and holy. And John says in his first letter, chapter 3, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know him is that know, know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Perfection. Some Christians say that you can be perfect now. Well, usually people who say that have a too low a view of God's law and a too high a view of their own moral goodness. And they're usually self-deceived. No, you're not going to be perfect now. But you will be perfect. If you belong to Christ, you will be perfect on that day. You'll never have to say ever again, so sorry for what I said just the other day. I should never have said that. You will never have to do that again. Because you won't be making those mistakes again. You won't be sinning ever again if you belong to Christ. See, God has foreordained this. God has predestined. Romans 8 verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those who belong to Christ, they were known by Christ before the creation of the world. They were foreknown, foreloved. And they have been predestined. God has predestined, God has determined, God has said, you, he has ordered, he has decreed that his children shall be conformed to the image of his son. There we perfect. Another thing. Now these are all intellect, of course. Is that at that last day, there will be perfect love between believers. Sadly, at the present time, there are differences, even between true Bible-believing Christians, there are differences of opinion about church government. Some believe in ch- church governed by elders. Some believe in church government by local gathered churches. There's arguments, discussions about baptism. Some are convinced that it's okay for a Bible-believing Christian to baptize his children. Others say, no, no, no. The scripture teaches baptism of believers alone. And there's various other things that even true believers disagree over. Sadly, sometimes there are church splits, even between two good, true Christians. There are people, they fall out with each other. That should never happen, but it does happen, sadly. They hardly talk with each other afterwards. But, come that day, when Jesus comes again, all the true believers will be Loving each other perfectly. There'll be no different denominations, no different groups, no different splits. We'll all be loving each other. Perfectly united with each other and living in perfect harmony with his creation. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1. He talks about how God has made known to us the verse 8 verse 9 of of Ephesians 1 God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Every true Christian will be united with every other true Christian. Whatever denominational views, whatever backgrounds, whatever nationality, it will be completely irrelevant once we're in glory. We'll be loving each other perfectly. And the last feature to mention is the greatest one of all, which is that at the resurrection, we will have a direct knowledge of God. We will see him in all his glory and in all his beauty and all his majesty. And we won't be destroyed. If we were to see God now, it would kill us. It would be too much for us. But then we will see him face to face. And we will behold his majesty, his beauty, and his glory. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, we read earlier. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, will be in the new Jerusalem. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. There will be no need of a light, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We will see the glory of God. And when you look at your fellow believer, he or she will be glorious as well. Because as they, as we all look at the Lord's glory fully with unveiled face, Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians, remember? How by faith we look at, by, we look at God's glory with unveiled face. But then it will be the reality. We will see him with unveiled face and we will shine. In his glory. We'll be fully satisfied to see our God. So, if you're a Christian, you've got a lot to be hopeful about. You've got a great hope, and so have I. You've got reason to be very optimistic, both for what happens before Jesus comes and what happens after he comes. So, let me give us some quick pointers for application. First of all, rejoice, like this verse says. Rejoice in your hope. Be glad in the hope that you've got. Secondly, pray that what is promised will become reality. You see, this is, shows us, remember the Lord's Prayer? Jesus said that we should pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's what it means. When we're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're praying that these promises for the future will become reality. We're praying that the gospel will flourish over the world. 
We're praying that the world will be changed by the gospel. We're praying that Jesus will come again and our bodies will be raised from the dead and, and all the blessings of the new age will dawn. Pray your kingdom come. Then thirdly, we should work hard and enthusiastically for the kingdom to be extended. Don't think to yourself, oh, I've got to go and do some evangelism. <laughs> I've got to go to an open air. Oh, good. Got to do some visiting. No! Wow! This is the great chance. I can be at church and I can help the extension of the kingdom of God by being there. Just by sitting on a pew, I can, I can really help the kingdom of God and try to talk to visitors. Wow, what a privilege. Oh, I can pray for, for Ed as he goes off to, 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 to uh, Stratford. Oh, I can go and join him. Wow, fantastic. Look for opportunities. I can talk to my friends at the school gates. Oh, I can witness to my friends at work. See this. Wow, what a privilege to be involved in this marvelous enterprise that the gospel conquers the earth, to be part of this triumphant army taking the gospel to the world. So work hard and enthusiastically. Then fourthly, Bear with your sufferings with patience and fortitude. It's not going to be very long. Just a few more years and then either you will die and you will be resting in the Lord until the resurrection or Jesus will come and your body will be instantly transformed. So hang on in there. Don't worry about the pains and the aches and this and that. It won't be for very long. And God's got a good purpose in it. So be patient in your suffering. And then be generous and loving towards others. Because thereby you will build up treasure in heaven to enjoy what's coming all the more. Now I've, I've spoken, assuming I'm speaking mainly to believers, but... Of course, I have to say that what I've talked about this morning is the hope for those who belong to Christ. And I have to say before I finish, do you really belong to Christ? Are you truly saved? Because if you're not saved, you've got none of this. All you've got to look to look forward to is terrible torment in hell. So if you don't yet come to Christ, what you, what you, if you don't yet belong to Christ, what you need to do is to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus. That what we've spoken about today might be yours. Now I'm going to speak about that a bit more tonight and I do hope that you will come back this evening. Well, let's uh, sing our last hymn, which is number 909. Um, I don't think we've sung this one before, so Grace is going to play the verse through once, and then we'll sing it together. 909, the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks.